Wonderful. Welcome. Babochim Habaim. You are here with us, the Institute for Holiness, Hamakon Le Kedusha, Kehilat Musar, in our weekly free offering called Awakening, Lehit Urrut, or Lehit Oreret, where we engage in what is Torah Musar mindfulness, looking at the weekly Torah portion from the lens of Musar mindfulness and seeing how we can apply the lessons learned from our ancestors in the Torah to our own lives. And we engage in a guided meditation practice of mindfulness meditation in the Theravada Vipassana insight tradition. I am Rabbi Chassia Uriel Steinbauer, the founder and director of the Institute for Holiness, and I'm delighted that you're here. We normally meet on Sundays at um, 12.30 Eastern Standard Time, 9.30 Pacific Standard Time, 7.30 p.m. Israeli time. Uh, we didn't meet last Sunday because it was Tisha B'Av. I hope if you observe that your fast was easy and meaningful. Um, so I am making up for last Sunday. This is going to be covering the Varim, the first Torah portion in our new uh, book, the five books of Moshe. We are in Deuteronomy, the Varim. And tonight uh, we will meet to cover the next Torah portion, which is Ve'et Hanan. All right. We always begin with our kavanot, our intention. So let me just start with today's date of when this is supposed to have taken place. We're supposed to be on the 9th of Av, right? So Tet Ba'av, the year Tet Shin Pei Bet, it was August 6, 2022. Uh, today's date is the 14th of August. And uh, I'm celebrating that this is our 45th sit and talk together, which is amazing. All right, our covenant. Let's move into sharing screen for those of you with vision. Without vision, or if you're listening on audio, uh, I will go ahead and read this out loud. We say our first kavanah, our first intention for today's practice is before doing acts of caring for the self, because we see this as a radical act of self-care, this practice together, taking refuge in community. This is something I'm doing to strengthen my own soul in order to be of benefit to others in the future. Our second intention, which is all this layer, we start with ourself, we move out to the other, our relationship with the other. Ben Adam, or I should say Ben Isha, Lechavara or Lechavaro. All right, uh, between a human being and the other human beings. Before doing acts for others, because we see this as we are practicing so that we can uh, be on this path towards holiness, towards Shlemut, towards wholeness, and how we act in alignment with our values, that the inside matches the outside, that there's integrity and consistency in our practice, and it'll benefit the other. That's we're other-oriented. So this is something I'm doing to strengthen my relationship to others so I can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need me. However you define God, how the divine, the creator, the universe for me, I call God Hashem, very personal relationship to the God of Israel who took 
our people out of slavery from Egypt and has sustained us all these years. The last covenant, before doing acts to strengthen your relationship with the divine, we say this is something I'm doing to strengthen my relationship with the creator so I can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need me. So we're looking at three levels, how we care for the self, how we care for the other, and how we care for the divine and the whole world. We are one. That is that those are our intentions, our covenant note for today. Uh, let's see here. Um, okay, so we're jumping into the Varim. Uh, I have a lot I want to uh, touch on. Uh, obviously, we can't cover everything in the Torah portion. We shouldn't even attempt. <laughs> but I want to just start with a little brief summary. Um, so we've entered now the 40th year of when our ancestors have been in the desert this whole time. And um, the, as you know, the previous generation have passed away based on decree by God um, in response and reaction to their behavior, particularly uh, when the scouts, sometimes called uh, spies, Meregalim, um, uh, went to observe the land of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, the land uh, promised to our ancestors. And how the people reacted in response to 10 of the spies' reports, okay? Um, so they were decreed to die out in the desert and that their children, those 20 years or younger, maybe even 19 and younger, would enter the land. So Moshe now, to give you the context, it gives a long speech. Basically, Deuteronomy is kind of one long speech. Dvarim, not just this Torah portion, but the whole book. And so he recalls, um, first he recalls how he needed help in the desert in order to manage the people, manage all the cases, case law that was brought to him, how they were supposed to behave and build community in the desert and onward. And as you may recall, his beloved father-in-law, the father-in-law of his wife, Sipora, named Yitro, gave him very sound, wise speech, wise advice with lots of wise discernment, definitely practicing, told him to appoint judges by the 10,000, thousands and the hundreds to handle the smaller cases. Um, he makes no mention of Yitro here. It's almost as if he's forgotten the source. Now we're going to keep that in mind <clears throat> because um, Moshe, our beloved ancestor, who's been our leader and um, just basically everything, uh, you know, it's like the great Saba, the great grandfather who's carried us all the way through from the institution of slavery in Egypt until they're about to enter the land. Um, he is known as the, the most humble man in the world, okay? So for humility and the practice of Musar mindfulness is that how much space you take up that is appropriate to you. And, and Moshe has done that, that dance that whole time of figuring out how much space he's to take up, um, does so very well also in relationship to God. Um, obviously, the, the times that he doesn't practice balanced humility, which is known as anava, it is very obvious. It's painfully obvious, actually. And it feels it can be feel painful to us as practitioners. So the fact that he doesn't, we always attribute our source. 
who gives us an idea, who gives us wise speech, wise discernment. He doesn't mention Yitro. He doesn't attribute that to him. So this is one sign. We're already seeing he's beginning his speech without attributing. Okay, so he's already not balanced in humility. We want to keep this in mind in the background. Then he decides to remind <clears throat> those Israelites, our ancestors standing in front of him, of the whole incidents of the Meraglim, the spies or scouts uh, into the land. And you may recall that these people weren't actually the ones who went. They're not the ones who were in the desert all 38, 39 years. These are young people ages one month to or one day to 19 years and 11 months or however long. <laughs> so they're, they're, they weren't really there and they're not the ones responsible for um, the whole thing. So you're seeing a shift. You're seeing a shift when our beloved Saba Moshe, our grandfather, is really um, <clears throat> shifting responsibility from the spies, uh, the scouts, the 10 who came with uh, both a positive and a negative report. And you have to have a balanced view here. And he shifted to the people are responsible. As if all, I mean, we could guess how many people were out there. If you're going to follow rabbinic figures, we're talking about 3 million people. How could 3 million people be responsible for that incident? So we need to keep in mind that someone is beginning to have judgment, that's Moshe, and um, blaming, essentially, right? Um, but he, it, all along, he and God have seen the behavior of our ancestors, those parents and grandparents of the children now standing at the cusp of, of entering the land of milk and honey, promised to the ancestors. They see it that, that that the ancestors lost faith in God. Um, this real sense that if you have faith in God, then you're going to believe that God will uh, take care of you the whole time in the desert, and you'll follow what God says, and um, it will be reflected in you believing that God can take care of things, and and to not allow fear a hindrance. Uh, whether it be, you know, desire or um, um, aversion um, or any of the other three hindrances, hindrances, that any of those or greed, hatred and delusion that they would, you're not going to allow them to take over you as a reaction because you have faith in God. You have faith that it will be taken care of. So they, they, they see the whole incident um, as the, the people and particularly also the spies, but the people not having faith because they allowed the fear of the other people in the land um, and from the, the report of the 10 other scouts to kind of take over. So let me share a little bit uh, before I move on more. Um, so here, if you're following along, we're in chapter one. We're going to look at Pasuk 5. It says right here, um, Let's see here. So on the other side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moshe undertook to expound this teaching. Okay, we're getting very specific. Torah hazot. Now, Torah, what does that mean? This teaching. 
So instruction, uh, we're told, would be better convey a wide range of meanings, okay, expressed by Torah, expresses both intellectual and legal connotations, right? And it's derived from Hora, right, which means teach and instruct. And it refers to civil and ritual procedure, prophetic teachings, reproof, moral exhortation, and didactic narrative. This source is coming from the Jewish Publication Society on their text on Deuteronomy, um, published or printed. Actually, the author, the scholar is Tigai or Tigay, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, <clears throat> so Moshe frequently refers to Deuteronomy as this Torah, okay? HaTorah Hazot. And um, if all the terms of God instructions, none better characterize Devarim, Deuteronomy, since it connotes both law and instruction that must be taught, studied, and pondered, and it's expected to shape character, attitudes, and conducts for those who do so, okay? So uh, there's a real strong interest, interest in wisdom and learning, and wisdom learned from experience, that these children standing at the edge now are supposed to learn from the experience of the ancestors, what they either witnessed or heard passed down to them as if it was their experience. Now think of us even when we have our uh, Pesach Seder, our, Torah, our Passover Seder, we are seeing ourselves as if we are, have left Egypt, that God has taken us out of slavery. And this is the same with these children standing about to enter the land, just the previous generation, they are to learn from their experiences. And that experience with God and now their, their own experiences is supposed to be the basis of their faith. It's not faith alone, as if a blind faith. It's, it's, it's primarily a faith that's based on experience of witnessing the miracles, how God sustained them, and basically learning from the ancestors in the sense of um, sometimes we learn from our ancestors more how not to behave than to behave. And I think uh, the children here um, have witnessed to that. So um, that's a short background of that that I wanted to share with you. And uh, basically here in our first Parsha in Deuteronomy, we have two divisions. We have the retrospective where Moshe is going back and looking um, at what's going on or what has happened. You know, it's almost like ruminations. Uh, yeah. And then an exhortation based on this historical experience to obey God's laws, okay? There's a real emphasis on the importance of obe obedience to God. And um, one of the key things is um, the message is mistrusting and disobeying God lead to disaster. And that trusting and obeying God leads to success. And so um, it's a practice for our ancestors and particularly the children standing at the edge of the, are they going to allow fear uh, to take over and not march on as their ancestors had done? Or are they going to trust in God and have faith in God that God will be the one who leads them? And so... Um, Basically, we're going to see a huge shift about how these children behave versus uh, our ancestors. So I'm going to go on to say that one of our central themes 
throughout these 45 sittings together. If you've been following along from the beginning, Bereshit, in the beginning, um, is that uh, we've always been noting wise speech and the lack of it. We're witnessing it in our ancestors and particularly Moshe um, <clears throat> to learn from them and learn from him how we can practice in our own lives. So um, we will note when we're going through this parsha, what is said in Moshe's speech, like I've already pointed out that he didn't mention Yitro is the one responsible. And uh, we'll also note um, that he doesn't, uh, especially in the next parsha coming later this evening, and where we cover the Et Hanan, um, you will note that he doesn't take personal responsibility. There is a lack of achariyot, responsibility, and the wise speech that, of course, reflects that the inner and the outer. And so, um, We'll we'll touch on that a bit. And then again, I've already mentioned there's a shift from responsibility from just the spies and the scouts to all the people. So um, I want to also notice it's really key in our practice of Musar mindfulness in this Parsha. So it's key in every Parsha, but in particular here, we want to notice um, judgment and how it arises, because we're going to learn from our ancestor that and God, Moshe and God are prone to having reactions of judgment, right, come up. And we need to look at it in ourselves and learn from this practice, what we what we call the shadow side, right? Our, we, all of us have our shadow side. Even some say the shadow inside. And so we, when we often uh, choose not to recognize and accept and practice around the shadow, to attend and befriend it, you often get people reacting. Um, pushing it away as if it doesn't exist. That's not me, that's you. <laughs> or over-identifying with it, right? I am the evil bad one versus it's just behavior. So um, we're going to want to keep this in mind because Moshe here uh, does not take personal responsibility and uh, has a hard time with that, blames it on the other. Um, he actually says at least one time, if not more, because of you. I am not entering the land. It reminds me of that song, right? Because of you, excuse me, if I don't attribute the author, the creator of that song, I don't know who it is. I'll look it up and post it on the website when we have a write-up. But it reminds me of putting the blame on someone else. Because of you, I'm not entering the land. Not because I, Moshe, attributed the water coming out of the rock to Ahron and myself, right? To his self. Excuse me. For those of you who don't know, I just did the blessing um, over water and other things uh, fall under that same bracha, that same blessing. Blessed are you, God, King of the universe, who um, that all comes uh, from his speech, his word, right? So it's talking about speech. Here we go again. So important. So um, it, we want to keep this in mind that when uh, someone's not facing their shadow side, they're, they're, they're having intense judgment, they will project that onto others. And uh, I think that we've witnessed this a lot. All right. We'll explore it more. Um, 
we have to remember that Moshe, our greatest prophet, our greatest leader, considered the most humble servant of Hashem throughout the whole Torah, he first lacks trust, right? I mean, there's this concept here. Let's get to it so I can show you where it is. Uh, we have so much we want to cover quickly. There's this language used if I think it's Lakit Karev, but it might be. No. Okay. It's in chapter one, Pasuk 22. Okay. Then you all came to me, right? There's this concept and in, in this idea, this um, this drawing near that you you come near, and, and this has really significant meaning in this parsha and all of them. This uh, this twofold idea that when you draw near, when you come near like that, um, that it carries twofold, right? It carries that you're going to. Um, that you're going to um, have faith and trust in God. Okay, that's the first. And the second is that um, you're not going to have fear, right? You're going to, that's part of the twofold. So the first is Moshe, if you'll recall, back a little while ago, uh, when uh, the people were demanding meat, which probably meant fish, quail, um, God sends down masses amount of meat. And at first, Moshe questions God's ability to do so. He actually doesn't have faith that God has this ability to provide that much meat or fish to all, perhaps 3 million, however many people. And so he, even God, like questions back, are you like questioning my ability to do this? I, God, who took you out of the land of Egypt, you know, out of the institution of slavery. So Moshe had his moment, had his moment of questioning, which we all, I think that's pretty human and probably healthy, right? Do we need God to be taking it so personally and, and reacting? Let's hold that. Okay, so that's the first instance where he lacked trust. The second instant that he lacked trust um, is seen in the whole spy incident, believe it or not. <laughs> I don't really hold him responsible for this, but there are commentators who see this. They try to find, like, because in this Torah portion, he attributes uh, God being angry with him and blaming him for the spy incident, which we didn't have privy to back when the incident actually happened. And so you're suddenly, commentators then have to look for, well, what did Moshe do wrong? And so one, they say, well, that the fact that he even sent them, that he allowed for them to go, it does say in the text that God commanded that they be sent. It's only later now in Deuteronomy here where Moshe doesn't say God commanded. He says that you, the people, wanted me to send you to do this. So again, we have to watch how language changes, how people's ruminations, how their their thoughts and emotions tied to it, uh, how they reinterpret history or what has happened. And it's often through a very strong emotional lens when they're not mindful. And this is what I think we're witnessing with Moshe here. So he he goes on to um oh they they so they think the fact that he even let them go, but even more importantly, apparently the people just requested to go and get basic information about the land not to kind of send a military exposition where you're going to scout out the land, see who's there, how fortified they are. Um, 
and that sort. Apparently that was a Moshe's addition. And it's that that he's being punished for. That's another interpretation. Um, you know, and then you have some beloved ancestors. I think it's Ramban, thank God, who actually say this is completely healthy and normal for people before they're about to enter and conquer a land through military conquest to actually go and scout the land. Like he he chooses not to see a problem with it. But they feel like that, you know, our ancestors need to find a reason why that both Moshe thinks that he's being punched in some way and being held responsible for this incident by God. And so the, the, the final decision, the final conclusion is, oh, he's just included in the whole consequence for that whole generation. I think it's more, and again, it's because he's forgotten and not taken responsibility that he hit that rock. And it's not even the hitting so much. It's that he attributed the coming out of that water to himself, that he was responsible for it without her own, not God. That is the ultimate act of arrogance in Musar mindfulness, that you attribute things to your power, to your hand, and not to God. And he, the most humble man in the world, at that moment was not balanced in anava and humility. He went completely to the other extreme because of his lack of anger management, because of his lack of patience, of savlanut. And that happens to all of us, the best of us. And if we could approach it with compassion, if God could approach it with compassion, then maybe when, when we wouldn't be having this discussion today. Okay, I say that with pain. Okay, it affects me as a practitioner in my practice. I have to be mindful of it. But these people are beloved to me. They're our ancestors. Okay, let's go on. Let's see what else we have to share together before we move into our sitting. Um, okay. So this idea that humility and awe in the reality of the presence of divine revelation, that that is the other key ingredient of the word tik revun elai kulachem, that you came, you draw near, you approached me, the same when we approach God, right? That it be done with humility and awe, always with the reality of the presence of divine revelation. Moshe always had, that. I mean, it was incredible. Like, think about it. Think about how hard it was that Moshe came so close to God, almost like a chaver, a friend, beloved, that he started to take for granted that relationship, that he, in that moment, forgot that he was in the presence of divine revelation and that he was, in a sense, the extension of it, the model of it, when he took responsibility for that water. And now he's doing it again. Here, recalling everything slowly, what the ancestors have done wrong, not taking personal responsibility. Okay, he's in shifting the responsibility. There's this sense that Moshe, our Saba, our tired grandfather, has had enough. His time is coming. And um, so something about it became too familiar for Moshe, Moshe, perhaps a sense of taking for grantedness. Um, okay. Um, let's see here. Um, what else do I want to say here with you? Okay. The last, the final things I want to share with you. Um, yeah, I, I want to share that last with you. 
there's this beautiful sense, but I don't want to move into it yet because I want to just finish our summary. And we learned some really great things about how our practice here, okay? Um, let me just pull up the last bit. I said page 16, 17. Um, the people. We learned more about how the people reacted to the spy incident than we than that we had privy to back in Bami Byron numbers. So apparently when they were complaining and crying and whining outside their tents in, in response to the spies or the scouts report, apparently they actually had said the language. And now I'm in chapter one. I'm in Pasuke 27. And it says here, Okay, they're soaking. He said, you soaked in your tents and it is and you said, it is because the Lord hates us that he brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over the Marites to wipe us out. Could you imagine the pain our ancestors must have been in to be so caught up in their reaction and to believe that hatred and delusion that they've internalized that they think God hates them. And that's for the reason that God took them out of Egypt is because because God hates them and sustain them for 40 years just to have them be murdered by the Amorites. We're going to practice compassion and metta, loving kindness, chesed around this. Because we didn't know that they actually had used this language until now. And, you know, our ancestors, our rabbinic ancestors take real strong with us, right? They, they see this as displaying of the people's perversity and ingratitude. And I can understand that. But if we're going to approach it with compassion, we're going to instead say, wow, you're really in a lot of pain that you're using this language. You're so caught up in your reaction that you think this is about hatred. And so um, that's that's pretty painful, right? Uh, we're starting to witness hatred, greed, delusion, um, ill will, however you want to word it. Okay, um, the final thing I will share. Okay. I want to say, we I touched on this briefly before, which is this idea that based on experience with God and being taken out of Egypt, taken out of the institution of slavery, sustain, sustained through the desert, that one through that experience has, was supposed to, in theory, uh, have faith in God, to believe that uh, God will protect them and sustain them through witnessing these miracles. And I just want to stay from right off the bat. Um, notice judgment come up immediately, both by our ancestors, our rabbinic ancestors, and even today. With, there's like judgment and anger towards our ancestors for not having that faith. Um, as if we would have it had we been there. So I just want to briefly to say no one is sustained by miracles. No one's faith. It's just not. 
um, I think we should have learned this by now over the last three, 4,000 years. Um, and it's clear by watching our ancestors here in the Torah that it doesn't sustain. Um, it's the relationship, it's the trust over time, it's the building over time. Um, so one is just to honor, right? Um, to honor that um, <clears throat> it was the people's task to practice during the time in the desert so that they wouldn't get caught up in the, the greed, hatred, and delusion, and they weren't doing enough of their own practice, right? So we see here in chapter one, uh, Pasuk 32, it says, yet for all that you have no faith in, in the Lord your God, right? For everything that God had done to you, right? No, excuse me. So, so despite all this powerful evidence, right? Supposedly the experiences in the, in the wilderness, Israel, our ancestors doubted God's ability, and this this faithfulness and the concept of it is in countless experiences are demonstrated of God's ability to meet their needs, and they fail to remember these lessons, supposedly. This is how it's interpreted. And, um, and, and nothing motivates Moshe more than the need to overcome the people's failure to recognize God's capacity to meet their needs. I want you to think even in personal experience, right? How many people have been married 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and then divorce, not remembering, not recalling all that the spouse had done for them, sustained the relationship in them. And this happens all the time, right? Where we just take things for granted and uh, aren't doing enough of our own practice to be awake to what is good in front of us, right? This is about hakaratatov, recognizing the good in front of us, a gratitude practice in my Musar mindfulness. And so um, I just want to honor uh, that this is just not the case. Like, why don't we just say it out loud? It It's not... That, that experience of miracles and being sustained was obviously not enough for the ancestors, but it also was because they weren't doing their own practice around it. So how do we, we can honor this without denying it or trying to change it as if either the problem was with God and God needed to provide more miracles. Maybe it was more about relationship and more compassion and carrying the burden that way. That's maybe. Um, or trying to change, you know, um, our ancestors, like as if it, it just, I think this is part of human, um, it's part of our human nature, but it's also part of our practice to realize that we can practice to not just mm, fall to or accept that it's human nature, that we can move beyond that and come to our higher selves, our future selves. Um, so I think this more reflects uh, the people's lack of practice than it, it, it does, but I think it also reflects the difficult relationship, the lack of relating in the way that was needed, one with compassion and chesed and loving kindness, rachamim, um, where there was less judgment and reactivity. We're seeing that as 
um, really damaging the relationships and not caring and sustaining the people uh, during those those years. Okay, so um, uh, that's what I wanted to share with you on that. So now I'm going to move into our clothing on the talk, which is <clears throat> some really beautiful, significant things we learn for our practice. Which is um, when we get to a discussion, two things. In chapter one around Pasuki, it's the, the verses six through, we're at the beginning. Let's just say that um, the people's fate, our ancestors' fate, depends on their responses to God's commands and promises and is constantly emphasized in this Torah portion and in the whole book of Deuteronomy of Devarim. So, but this these beautiful key phrases that I want us to keep in mind as we're entering the last half of the month of Av, the Hebrew month of Av, before we enter Elul, which is the intensive month where we really practice to prepare ourselves for Rosh Hashanah, the new year, <clears throat> the high holiday season, to turn and return to God, return to our higher selves to take responsibility. So there's this key phrases <clears throat> that appear in God's commands and, and promises, such as you have done such and such long enough. So when, when Moshe is recalling their travels and what they've done, this is the language is used. You have done such and such long enough. Now, what have you personally done such and such long enough this past year? What is it that you need to this wolf, right? To turn away from, to change. So God is saying, you've done such and such long enough. Turn about and make your way. Go up. And that's what we are going to take on our practice today and even entering towards Elul, towards Rosh Hashanah. Hearing that voice of God, hearing it, our internal wisdom inside, our moral compass. You have done such and such long enough. What have you done? such and such long enough? Have you been beating yourself up long enough? Have you not been kind and compassionate towards yourself long enough? Perhaps those closest to you? Seek that out in your journal this week, in your Cheshbon Hanefesh journal, your Counting a Soul journal, looking at your words, thoughts, and deeds. See what it is that you've done enough. Okay, and then we are going to take what God says and turn about and make our way and go up. All right. It's beautiful, beautiful wisdom to take from this Torah. The final thing I want to say is what we learn uh, when Moshe recalls that he couldn't handle all the cases brought before him. And he took Yitro's, his father-in-law's really great advice and appointed judges and um, other people to help. Um, he was told to take, um, he, as he recalls this, this is in chapter one. Pasuki verse 13. Okay, pick for yourself from each of the tribes, people, men here who are wise, discerning, and experienced. Um, so it's so beautiful, is that um that coming from Rambam, one of our great uh, rabbinic uh, advisors, ancestors, uh, also a great philosopher, a doctor, 
we learn much from him in his Mishneh, uh, Mishnah Torah and Hilchot's uh, Sanhedrin, chapter 2, 7. He learns out seven qualities uh, that uh, Yitro, known as Jethro in English, English recommended uh, in order for these people to be appointed. Okay, well, all we hear here in Exodus and Shemot, we are told that they must be capable men who fear God, trustworthy men who spurn ill-gotten gain. This is coming from Exodus, Shemot, chapter 1821. So this is what Rambam learns out. And this is, we'll close with her. We'll close, excuse me. Those are the Mishkupai in my glasses. Um, we're going to practice practice this and, our, and realize this is part of our practice in Musa mindfulness. He learns that there must be wisdom, which he gets here directly from the Torah. There must be humility on the va, not taking up more space than you're supposed to. Fearing God, which we know has been since the beginning when we started learning together in Bereshit and all the way through Shemot, that to fear God meant you had a moral compass. You knew right from wrong, and you would do the right thing, even in the face of potential death. Think back to our beloved um, midwives uh, in Egypt who refused to murder the baby Hebrew boys. They had, it was even stated, they had a fear of God. Um, it's this knowledge, right? that they know what's wrong and they're not going to do it, all right? So wisdom, humility, fear of God, hatred of unjust gain, love of truth, respected and of being of upstanding reputation. So may we all practice as a lifelong journey together, taking refuge in community, that we build our wisdom we're gaining insight into who we are, our behavior, how to care for others. We are doing so with proper humility, balance, anava. We are doing it with a fear of God and the sense of a moral compass, knowing what's right and wrong and living on that path. Um, the Eightfold Noble Path and the path towards holiness, Kedusha. Uh, that, of course, we will turn away from unjust gain, behavior that we uh, don't uh, practice. We will have a love of truth in our wise speech and that we will respect ourselves and that will gain the respect of others and of upstanding reputation. We can only be through integrity and um, consistency of matching our inward with our outward behavior and our outward behavior with the inward, right? And that is creates this kind of upstanding reputation. We're worthy of um, being emulated. So, and we turn to those that we want to emulate. That's how we strengthen each other and our practice. So we're going to move into our meditation practice now. So for those of you who are new to this, I'm going to do uh, guide you with my voice, with instruction. Um, you're welcome to four different postures that are classic during mindfulness meditation. Uh, the seated posture, which can be on a chair or on a meditation cushion, often known as a zafu. Uh, if you're seated like me, you'll want to 
be upright in a dignified position created in the image and likeness of Hashem, of God, eh, with your feet grounded, held by the earth. So you feel that you're centered and you're here. You can let your hands rest on your lap or holding your heart, whatever works for you. You're also welcome to lie down. If you have vision, I recommend keeping the eyes open so that you do not fall asleep during the meditation. You can lower the gaze or you're welcome to close the eyes if you're seated. Uh, you're also welcome to a standing position, kind of the strong mountain pose or standing next to a chair so that you feel stable. You're also welcome to do a walking meditation while I lead. Whatever works for you, you have to decide and practice what you need in this moment. So if you have any chronic pain or low back issues, feel, take ownership of your practice and find the posture that works for you today. So we will begin with three long, intentional inhalations and exhalations. So in-breath. And next breath, oh. letting it out the mouth, in breath through the nostrils. Oh. And in breath again. Letting your shoulders re relax, coming to some ease, slowly arriving to stillness, to a sense of quiet, being here together with everyone who is practicing in this moment. You can allow your breath to naturally fall now in its own natural rhythm. No need to force it or control it. And we will begin with a mindfulness practice of seeing what is here for us right here and right now. So first we do a kind body scan with curiosity, seeing from our toes all the way up through our ankles and legs and knees, seeing what's here for us, any strong sensations in the body that are calling for your loving attention. Simply honor them. No need to over-identify or push them away. Moving into the hips and the low back, into the stomach region, into the chest and the upper back. Notice as you travel through your body and noticing the sensations that are here for you today, if there are any strong emotions attached to them. And if you could use your practice of the feeling tones, saying this is pleasant, or this is unpleasant, or this is neutral. It will help you remain in the present moment to my voice, or your breath is your anchor, the body as your anchor. Any strong emotions, just allowing them to be here, attending and befriending. And finally, we will look if there's any strong thoughts carrying our attention away. Are we ruminating about anything in the past, planning for something in the future, 
what thoughts are happening right here and right now? Any thoughts about the teaching, any strong reactions to our ancestors or what I have to share? Noting what's here for you. Can you be with it? Ask yourself, how can I be with myself? How can I honor myself right now, my practice with kindness? We will move into a practice of mindfulness of thoughts. Letting them be, letting them rise and fall like waves of the ocean around the breath. Sooner or later, a strong thought will arise and carry away your attention. Whether it be three breaths, six breaths or 10. From time to time, I will go silent for you to engage in your practice silently. Notice when a thought carries you away. As soon as you notice this thought, name it gently according to its predominant quality. You can use simple notes like planning, remembering, judging, worry, imagining, fearful thought happy thought, interesting thought, creative thought, painful thought, and so forth. Simply naming and acknowledging the thought is supportive of the witnessing quality of mindful, loving awareness. Once you have noted a thought gently for some time, you will notice that it dissolves like a cloud under sunlight. Thoughts are ephemeral. They are empty and have no substance except what we invest in them. So if we think back to Moshe and even God and our beloved Torah, for Moshe, his thoughts, of judgment, he allowed them to become strong. He allowed them to identify with them. And then he acted out on that judgment. There was a lack of compassion towards our ancestors from time to time. And there was a lack of responsibility towards himself and others when he couldn't recognize his own behavior. 
of when it wasn't humble, when it wasn't full of humility. So we can get caught up in any of the classic five hindrances in our thoughts. We can have identifying thoughts, be carried away, or aversion, trying to push away a thought that makes us uncomfortable. can even get sleepy because we don't want to face the thoughts or engage in the practice. We can get really restless, want to move around, not being present for what arises. And the final one is that we can even doubt. We can allow doubt to rise and identify, or we even question our practice. It's what happened to our ancestors in the desert when they were sitting at their tents. They doubted their relationship with God. They doubted God's love, God's sustaining them, God's power, God's faithfulness. Doubt took over. They allowed doubt to take over. They were caught up in identifying with the doubt. And suddenly God turns into hatred. So watch what happens to you in this practice. Simply return again to mindfulness of breath and body for a time until another strong experience, whether a thought, emotion, pulls your attention from the breath. Stepping out of the stories of thought that our storytelling happens. We like to tell stories in our head. We can begin to see common patterns of thought without being so caught in them. So for Moshe over these 40 years, we can see a pattern for him. You know, he, he sustains, he's present, he tries to engage. He's there, and then he allows his bucket to get full. He doesn't know how to ask for proper help. He has to be guided from the outside. He doesn't know how to lay proper boundaries. I've had enough, and how to ask for the proper help. And even when he asks for help, he's not necessarily understood completely by God. And so his bucket gets full, and he reacts. He has judgment. And it's strong, sometimes so strong, he engages in commanding murder of our ancestors after the golden calf. And then he, the amazing thing about him is that he never leaves the relationship. He even threatens it at some point, more so, less with, not with the people, not with our ancestors, but more towards God. He, will, he even says, you know, I will uh, stop doing this. I will let me die now. I will not be in relationship with you anymore. If you wipe out all these people, if you hurt them, 
all of them in this case. But so he's able to come out of his reaction of the bucket eventually, the bucket being full. And he comes back to really trying to practice Savlanud, carrying the burden of these people, realizing that he is tied to them, that he is one with them, he loves them. It is an act of love to remain in relationship and bear the burden. So we see this common pattern of thought and he gets caught up in that cycle if we can just move him out of that cycle. But unfortunately, he will, he will die by the end of the Devarim in Deuteronomy without taking responsibility, without recognizing where he did fail, where he had room for teshuva, returning, of taking responsibility. So we want to, in our own practice, see if we have common patterns of thought that we get caught up in them. We can do this practice of mindfulness of thoughts daily and begin to journal afterwards to see where are there any common patterns of thoughts. Now you can alternate between mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of other strong experiences when they arise. Becoming steady, a loving witness of all that arises and passes. You become balance and equanimity, peaceful ones sitting in the midst of the rising and falling of waves of experience. There's such a lack of menuchat nefesh of equanimity in our beloved Torah, in the desert experience of our ancestors, of God, of Moshe. We all do well to practice this. Always attempting to keep a space between the match and the fuse. In that space, as Dr. Frankel taught us, is our liberation, is our freedom, our ability to choose our response. The very moment that you shift from being absorbed or lost in thought to simply naming it without being swept into it, I want you to notice how it feels in the body. Where do you feel it? What does it feel like? Also begin to notice what type of thoughts have an effect on your body. Which thoughts trigger you most in their bodily effect? So when we have judgments that so easily goes towards anger and arrogance, we feel it in the belly, in the chest, a simultaneously constriction as we take up more space with our arrogance and judgment. It's amazing how both can happen at the same time. Some thoughts automatically bring strong emotions, and some emotions automatically bring up certain thoughts. In your practice now and this week, witness the interplay between thought and emotion.
as we close in the next minutes of silence. where I will tell you it's time to come out of the meditation. Imagine that you are the open sky and the thoughts that you're having float through like clouds. Sense what it's like to shift from thinking to lovingly noticing the clouds. We enter silence right now. Gently and slowly open your eyes if they've been closed this whole time. Meet us back in this shared space, either on Zoom or live streaming on our YouTube channel or on Facebook, found on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you for your practice and thank you for joining us today in this 45th sitting Parashat Varim and our practice of awakening Torah, Musar Mindfulness. I am Rabbi Chasio Ariel Steinbauer, founder and director of the Institute for Holiness, Kihilat Musar. We accept your donations for this sitting and to support the Institute. You may find all information that you need at our website at kahilatmusar.com. We also accept sponsorships for this weekly sitting. In honor of somebody or in memory of someone, may their memory be for a blessing. Reach out to me at rabbichasia at kahilatmusar.com to arrange for a sponsorship. And with that, may you be strong this week. May you be mindful. May you be healthy. May you be at ease. May we all cause less suffering. May we merit more honor and shared in our wholeness and holiness together. I look forward to practicing with you later today. Take care.